Thanks, thanks. Nice to see you. You've had fun already? Yeah? Nobody's bored you yet? I understand you discovered my spiritual father in the last session. Yeah? The secret is now out. (laughs) He's so funny. Yeah, I'm going to try to do well just to honor Banning. My dad. <laughs> I, uh, whenever there's this kind of a setting, uh, especially first day of a conference, and uh, I haven't had any interaction with you, of course. And in fact, I leave after this. My vacation starts after this session. So I, I've got, uh, we're taking a, a extended time for rest. Uh, we've been going pretty hard for for quite a while, and. Uh, uh, I got in a, I flew 310,000 miles last year and been averaging about 250 or so the previous several years. And so we just uh, felt, uh, after four prophets talk to you, you suddenly feel moved to do something. <laughs> Some of us are rather slow. It takes three or four good prophets to get us straightened out, you know, but we're going to take uh, eight weeks and uh, rest, but you guys will have uh, an outrageous time here. Um, I actually, we actually extended uh, our, uh, our when we would start. We would have normally started Sunday, but uh, but I did want to have at least one chance to talk to you because this is a pretty important deal. Somebody said to me a while back, uh, healing is not the whole gospel, and that's true. But it's not whole without it either. It's um, it's such a, an essential part of the gospel. I I don't like it as a focus, but I'm unhappy without it as a fruit. It's supposed to be the evidence of following after the Lord. Signs follow those who believe. And if they don't follow you, I tell people, if signs aren't following you, follow them till they follow you. You know, you just you just keep staying in that atmosphere until it gets on you and affects not only how you think, how you how you see, but it affects how you live. It affects what we do with our time, with our life, with our prayer life. So many people have a huge hurdle to get over because they don't know if it's God's will to heal. There's one whole camp that doesn't believe he does it anymore, and then there's a whole other camp that believes that he can, but who knows if he wants to. And uh, and that that's such a major barrier because mentally we get locked up in into religious standards that Jesus never set. Whatever you think you know about God that you can't find in the person of Jesus, you have reason to question. Jesus is perfect theology. How did he respond to affliction? How did he respond to torment? How did he respond to the issues that he faced on a daily basis? Um, He healed everyone who came to him. We know he didn't heal everyone alive. You know, uh, when we talk about uh, stories like the Pool of Bethesda, The pool was surrounded by sick people. Jesus healed one guy. The Bible celebrates the one guy that was healed. If it were to happen today, the newspaper writers would be interviewing the other 20 people to find out how it felt to be passed up by Jesus. The theologians of today focus on what God didn't do and create a theology out of it. You can't create a theology around what God didn't do. See, Jesus wasn't trying to reveal what God could do when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. 
God is omnipresent. He can heal everyone at once. He was trying to reveal what one man could do that was in right relationship with the Father. He's establishing a standard, something that's followable, that's doable by us. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And the way he dealt with issues, I when I pray for someone and they don't get healed, I'm not going to do guilt. I'm not going to do shame. I'm not going to, uh, you know, start, uh, you know, wondering if there's some hidden sin in my life. I'm not going to go there because that's not the answer. But neither am I going to rest and say it's okay. Neither am I going to accept a different standard than what Jesus set. When I'm ministering to people, somebody doesn't get healed if there's not a miracle. Um, I'm going to accept that under the blanket called the sovereignty of God. But when I get alone in prayer, then I deal with it as though it's my responsibility. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It's just my personal, it's just my personal deal. A lot, a lot of folks don't want to accept any responsibility and they just pray and, and they live saying that's God's responsibility to heal and it's not ours. Our job is to pray for the sick. Well, I, I believe that that's true, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray for the sick. The Bible told us to heal the sick. And and I, I'm not the healer. I realize that, yet he's commanded me to heal the sick, which is like the rest of the gospel. He keeps commanding us to do stuff that's impossible. <laughs> the real issue is that is, is not that he commanded us to heal the sick. And, hey, that's impossible. But the real problem is that we think the rest of the Christian life is actually possible. We got drafted into something that's impossible. We got selected, hand-selected, and assigned to something that's humanly impossible. You know, here's a little command that he threw out. Be perfect, even as I am perfect. <laughs> oh, no problem. We got that one down. <laughs> but that's the gospel. That's, that's the gospel. That's the nature of the gospel. See, law requires, grace enables. So the difference is not that the law required hard things and under grace things are easy. It's completely opposite. The law required things. Grace requires harder things. The law never required anyone to heal the sick. See, the law says you don't steal. Under grace, you can't covet. The law says you don't commit adultery under grace. You can't lust after. It's a much stricter line under grace. But the reason it's called grace is because grace enables. It's not like he commands me to go do something and I'm off on my own trying to do it. It's that when I receive what he has commanded me to do, the Spirit of God comes alongside and enables me to do what only God can do. That's why it's called grace. Grace is the enabling presence of God. It comes from favor and enables me to do what I can't do in the natural. So for that reason, we learn this life of grace. And it includes things like healing and deliverance and all the other things that we've been commanded to do. It's all, it's all a part of this life of grace. We're commanded to do stuff we can't do. In fact, one of the soapboxes I've been on for a little while is that the church, the high point for much of the church, the high point of celebration for much of the church 
is when we accomplish something that's humanly possible. We build another building, we raise funds for feeding the poor, missions, or whatever it is that we have in our heart to do, which are very appropriate assignments. They're very, very much from the Lord. They're required of us. But when the high point of celebration is that we accomplish something that the Kiwanis Club can accomplish, then, then we're, we've really paled in comparison to what the example that Jesus gave us. There's a story about a pastor who was asked, uh, he was, they were building a new sanctuary and he wanted to help and, but he didn't have any of the skills needed. So he, uh, he volunteered to just do any grunt work that the carpenters or the, the uh, contractors had for him. So they said, listen, why don't you get a hundred boards cut at this length by tomorrow morning? And so he stayed there and he, took the first two by four and he cut it to the exact measurement, which was, let's say, six feet. Cuts it at six feet. And then over the second board, instead of using the tape measure again, he uses that cut board, puts it on top of that one, marks it, and cuts the second board. When he's through with the cutting the second one, he takes that one, puts it on top of the third board, marks it, and cuts it. He does that for a 100 boards. By the time you get to the hundredth board, you've got a board that's over seven feet long, and yet it was supposed to be six feet. Because every time you mark it, it's an eighth inch longer than what it should have been. Which is fine if you're cutting two or three boards, but when you're cutting a hundred boards, you end up with wood that they can't even use. They've got to recut it all together. And the issue has been the church keeps comparing itself with the previous generation to feel good about what we're doing instead of the original standard. See, the original board was cut at six feet, not seven feet. The great news is, is that whenever he gives us a command for the impossible, he commits himself to enable us. So the only remaining factor is how how flexible are we willing to become? Can we yield to the assignment of the impossible? Can we engage in a process where when it doesn't work, I don't blame him? Can I engage in a school, in a lifetime of training, where when it doesn't work, I don't blame him? But neither do I go into guilt and shame. Somehow I chalk it up to the fact that I don't know all I need to know, and we'll go at it again. I celebrate the fact that he can turn any situation around. He can, you know, as I tell our folks, he can win with a pair of twos. You know, he can win, he can win with any hand. He can turn any situation around. And so we have people that walk around saying, you know, when I got cancer, my family was reunited and, and, uh, it brought great unity in our home. We, had, we focused together on dealing with this. And, God brought a lot of healing in our home. And the conclusion has been, well, then God sponsored cancer to bring everyone back together. No, it's just how big he is. He can use something as ugly as cancer to bring people together. But he didn't author that. He did, didn't come across his desk and he says, oh, I think that would be good for him and approve it. We live in a spiritual conflict. 
And if I, if I continually think, well, I'm dealing with something that God approved of, why am I trying to get it fixed? Why go to the doctor and have him cut out the tumor? I'm working against God's assignment to bring character into my life. Why take the pill to cause the pain to go away or, or the infection or whatever it might be? All these folks that believe God sent the disease, they have no right going to the doctor. Interfere with God's plan. That was a good point, Bill. A very, very good point. Don't back off. So the Lord's drafted us into this army, and we have this assignment to fix the impossible, to bring it under submission to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to capture situations that have been touched by the one who kills, steals, and destroys. So the assignment's easy to find. Wherever you find loss, death, or destruction, that's the assignment. And that's where the gospel shines the best. Sounds pretty simple. The Christian life is simple. It's, it's not complicated at all. It's very simple. Everything belongs to Jesus, and I do anything he says. It's just really simple. It, it may be hard. It may be hard as can be, but it's very simple. It's not complicated whatsoever. The mentally retarded can live it perfectly. The problem isn't intelligence. It's heart. My heart will take me places my head can't fit. And it's not that it's not that God doesn't want us to have understanding. It's not that He doesn't want us to have the ability to explain and articulate and to teach. And those things are very vital, but they're just not as important as a surrendered heart. The heart's the main deal. James he says, In humility receive the word the sperm of God, the word, in humility, that's the condition of the soil, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. That's to a born-again believer. To have the ongoing process of salvation, transformation, personal transformation, absolute deliverance from every connection with darkness torment, disease, mental anguish, whatever it might be, that word that is planted deep in me because I was tender in heart, that word is able to complete what God has started. It's the capacity to receive in the heart the word that God speaks. That's where the ability to save my soul is. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able. Which is able points back to the word. The word is able to save, to heal, to deliver, to transform. So the whole issue is the tenderness that we have in our heart and remaining tender to what God is saying. The big challenge for us is just remaining tender to that voice. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the voice. 
The voice and the presence are the same. That's why he calls himself the word of God. Because the voice and the presence are the same. So the Lord is, has drafted us into this incredible assignment to live uninfluenced by yesterday's failures and the lack of a previous generation and all the things that seem to cripple the efforts of the church to go for the big prize. In other words, not compare ourselves with the previous generation, but compare ourselves with the original standard that was given. And, you know, I'm, I'm spending my entire lifetime on this one thing, beating this one drum, and I may never come into what I see is available, but I'll at least set a momentum. I'll, I'll at least create a momentum. I'll at least, I'll at least get another generation ready, ready to do the same thing. Tragically, as you look at church history, it's a very overly simplified view of church history, but if you look at if you look at the, the message of salvation by grace was moved from the back burner to the front burner several hundred years ago. And while there obviously salvation by grace has existed all through church history, it's the only way a person could be saved. But it was moved from the back burner to the front burner, you know, back in Luther's era, back in that period of time. And since then, that ball has not been dropped for hundreds of years. I don't know if you've read this in church history, but back in that day, people would pray sometimes two, three, four weeks. This happened on into, I think, the 1700s. They would pray three, four weeks for conversion, for salvation. They would pray for weeks at a time before they would get born again. And now anybody could come in off the street, walk into the room, I could assign him to any one of you, and within a few moments in the back of the room, you could lead him to Christ, and they would truly be born again. Why? Because a momentum started several hundred years ago in this message of salvation, and the church has kept it at the forefront for these hundreds of years now. And the momentum has increased and increased, where we are riding on a wave that prior generations paid a price to establish. And so now a truth that was so difficult 400 years ago is now so easy because we ride the way that others paid a price for. Healing was picked up and dropped. Another generation picked it up and the next one dropped it. See, if Luther would have seen that in the word salvation was included healing. That brush stroke of redemption. Matthew 6 says, deliver us from evil. The word evil comes from the word pain. The word pain comes from the word poor. So evil, sin, pain, sickness, poor, poverty. The brushstroke of redemption covered all three realms in one stroke of the brush. 
It was all dealt with then. That's why he says repeatedly throughout Scripture, you'll find that sickness and sin are dealt with in the same breath. A man who needs healing, lowered through the ceiling, and he looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And they're stunned at him. He says, well, what's easier? Here's the question you need to ask. What's easier, to forgive or to heal? But just so that you know, the Son of Man, he says, has the authority to forgive sins. Get out of your bed and walk. What was he doing? He was demonstrating he had the authority to forgive as well as to heal. They knew he had the authority to heal. Please notice, he identified himself in that moment as the Son of Man, not the Son of God. Be clear, he's the eternal Son of God. He didn't earn the position. He wasn't a created being that somehow ascended. He's eternally the Son of God, but he set aside divinity, chose to live as a man, so he had set a standard that could be followed. He was setting an example that could actually be mimicked. And so he demonstrates his authority to heal and the authority to forgive in the same lesson that they're both equal. In other words, they run a parallel track. That's amazing. If Luther would have only seen that. There's so much scrutiny. There's so much opposition. There's so much flack that comes when you start talking about miracles. The secular press even gets in on the bandwagon. You know, we've got a part of the church that believes that miracles are for today, and thankfully that's growing. It's growing tremendously. I'm, I'm, I've never been more encouraged with the amount of the percentage of people from all different branches of the church that are just saying, you know what, we have learned. It is, it is a now thing. But there still is a fairly significant part of the church that doesn't believe it's for today. We've got the segment that does. We've got the segment that doesn't. Of the segment that does, there's only a small percentage that actually demonstrates it. My conviction is if we had everyone who believed in it could demonstrate it, there would no longer be a part who didn't believe it. (laughs) Our greatest strike against us is we champion another theory but have no evidence. Jesus died, and he didn't raise himself from the dead. When it says he died, it means he really died. If you're dead, you can't do something for yourself. I know it's complicated. You may want to write it down. When you're dead... You can't do something for yourself. But he didn't raise himself. He was raised. 
by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of resurrection. Now that same spirit now resides inside of you. And he wants out. He's in us as a river, not a lake. He's not a pond that just resides in us. He is a forceful river. John 7 calls him a river that flows from us and alters the nature of the geography around us. So how is that presence released? See, we're actually brokers of a person. A person. This is, this is bizarre to me. Both the Father and the Son spoke of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't speak of himself. And, and Jesus said, you can blaspheme me, you can blaspheme the Father, but you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're in deep trouble. And so the one that, if, I don't think this is the right word. I'll, I'll come up with a better one another day. But the most fragile one in heaven was entrusted to you. That's how much he trusts you. That's how much he trusts in his capacity to transform you from the inside out. So he took the one that is the most delicate in nature and caused him to reside inside of you. And that presence wants to flow through us. Now, if I... If I follow the laws of one kingdom, I cannot expect to get the benefits of another kingdom. We, we face, uh, one of the greatest temptations we face in life is that we live in two worlds. We live obviously in this world, but we're citizens of heaven. But when we continually follow the principles and rules and laws of this world, we can't expect to get the benefits of that one. In this world, if I jump off this stage, I will land on the floor every time. Because there's a law in this world that says whatever goes up must come down. And I and I will I will I will land on the floor every single time. It's called gravity. It's a law in this world. Now, when his world takes over, you walk on water. But it's the influence of two different worlds. And it's not as though this world is evil. It's not as though the laws of the boundaries set in this world are evil. They're just, they're just assigned for this world. But when you have citizenship in two worlds, then to get the benefit of one of the, of the kingdom, we have to do so by following the economic laws of that kingdom. There are boundaries, there are principles, there are laws. In the same way that I step off this step, I, my weight goes down, I land on the floor. In the same way, there are, there are things in the kingdom of God that when those principles are followed, the answers are as consistent and predictable as gravity. <laughs> It's, it's absolutely true. It's just, it's learning, it's learning how to live in that world, living from heaven towards earth is the big challenge. And that's, that's the rub. That's the, that's the challenge that we face. That's the, the part that grates on us day after day after day because we're, we, we face the reality of pain, of loss. We face this, the stuff that's going on in this world of rejection or, 
or betrayal or whatever it might be. We've got that stuff going on. We live in a world with absolute perfect peace. You know, I like to describe it this way. I Heaven is filled with absolute confidence in God, and this world is filled with absolute mistrust and betrayal. And you and I will always reflect the nature of the world we are most aware of. Living conscious of him and his world actually positions us to broker that reality into the atmosphere. Strangely, the Holy Spirit has entrusted himself to us to actually be brokered. There's probably a better word for that than that, too, but I, I don't. I've been stuck on that one for a few years. So to actually broker, to release his presence. What do you think you, what do you think happens when you lay hands on someone? You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and when you lay hands on someone, there's actually a release of presence. Unless you're just doing a symbolic act. But if you're doing an act of obedience out of faith, there's a release of presence. That's why Jesus in Nazareth has said he could do no mighty works there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. What did that mean? The miracle atmosphere that he was accustomed to where there's a corporate anointing. People have come in in agreement. Where you have corporate anointing, you have exponential increase of presence. Where the Spirit of God is able to move all over the room at one time. He can simply point the finger. He can call out a particular disease. I've, we've, I've seen this happen countless times. Where prayer is not even needed. Just point to the person. You call out the disease. Why? Because there's a corporate anointing. Corporate anointing requires agreement. When the agreement locked down, and people turn from supporters of Jesus in that meeting, which if you read Luke 4, you'll find out that they were all bearing witness to him. Everyone in Nazareth was realizing he's God. And then somebody raised a question that caused them to doubt what they were seeing. And in that moment, it turned to an atmosphere of unbelief. So what did he do? Instead of depending on a corporate anointing that just vanished because agreement was broken, he laid his hands on somebody and he would pray for them. Because the unbelief in a room can never shut down the anointing that you carry in your person. Nobody else can regulate or can control that. Nobody else can, no one else can alter or, or diminish it because what you carry is what you carry. And so it's released through your personal engagement with an individual. So there may be, you may be in a setting, you know, you can be at a family reunion and there's all this hostility. And, uh, and you can't answer all the questions. And people are, you know, just sit there and let them do their stuff. You just sit there and you look around the room and just look for the one person that's not speaking. Look for the one person that's in pain. Look for the one person that's hurting. After it's dialed down, go over them and say, would you like to get rid of that headache? Because nobody can shut that down. Shut down what you're carrying as a person. The Spirit of God is within you. So the whole purpose for the laying on of hands is actually impartation. It is the release of a person who carries a specific grace that is needed by that individual that you're praying for. That's the person. That's the purpose for the touch. I was raised in an environment where we laid hands on people, but we never knew why. It's just everybody just laid their hands on the person and felt 50 pounds heavier and... You know, in our background, everybody just prayed in tongues. There was no intelligent prayer in the whole group. And when we were through, we were afraid to ask them if they were well. We just turned around and walked away because we were pretty certain they weren't, you know. We just, we just kind of left it at that. That's, that's, 
That's what I saw. So I, I didn't know anything else. And we just, you know, we just laid our hand there because, well, that's what you do. You just put your hand there. Why? Well, that's because that's just what you do. <laughs> you know, in the Old Testament, the priest would lay his hand on what they called the scapegoat to release upon that goat the guilt of Israel and then release him into the wilderness because there was an impartation of guilt through that act. Paul, in talking to Timothy, uh, told him to give attention to the gifts that were given to him through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands was the impartation. The word is what activated and released it. So the point is, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And... and um, to learn to recognize that presence and to cooperate with that presence can't just be about ministry. It's got to be a lifestyle of friendship. Yeah. If it's just about ministry, intimate with the Holy Spirit for the sake of ministry only is professional intimacy. What do we call those who are intimate as a profession? I can't cultivate a tenderness towards him because I want to be used. I do want to be used. I do want him to flow through me. But it has to be because of a personal, intimate value for him as God. That's the value. And you cultivate the awareness of the presence. You cultivate the awareness of the person. You cultivate the awareness of this Holy Spirit. And you learn to host that presence. Sometimes he'll use you powerfully. Sometimes it's just for you. And that's the coolest thing in the world. For God to call you friend. What if somebody like Billy Graham was a friend of your family and he would come to your house, but every time he came to your house to visit, you called all your neighbors and told him he was there. And every time he came over, he saw this crowd waiting for him to come. Pretty soon he's not going to come anymore because it's become obvious that it's not about your relationship with him. It's about your relationship with your neighbors, that you look good in their eyes. He doesn't like being used. Yeah. It's this amazing opportunity and gift that we have to actually shape the course of world history. That's not an understatement. That's not, excuse me, that's not an exaggeration. That's not, that's not uh, a pipe dream. That's the reality. It's what we were assigned to do. He told us to disciple nations. I think he actually meant it. That means nations become disciples. That, that really was a good point. <laughs> that nations would actually follow the Lord. Nations. Nations. 
See, the thing about God is every time he gave us a command, like um, every, every time he gave this phrase, he says, certainly I will be with you. I've, I've tried to find every one of those I could find in Scripture. Every time he says, I'll be with you. He said it to Joshua. He said, I'll be with you. Said it to Moses. Said it to Gideon. He just said it to all these people. Do you know when he said it? He always said it when he gave them an impossible assignment. And what does it say in Matthew 28? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, disciple nations. I will be with you always. He always reveals his abiding presence when he gives us something it's impossible to do. That's the grace picture. He comes alongside to enable. So I can't imagine him giving us an assignment to disciple nations if he wasn't fully prepared to help us succeed at it. Are you guys all right? All right. All right. So here we have this amazing assignment to change the world. The way he did. Science can't improve upon it. Religious institutions can't improve upon it. The way he did it still works. I don't know if you've ever done this kind of a study or not, but I, years ago I, I, I went through the scripture to find every reference to water I could find. Rivers, lakes, pools, rain, all of it. And it was kind of fun, actually. But the crazy thing I found out is that when Israel was in trouble militarily, God would prophesy to them something like, in pools, you know, I, I will fill up pools of water for you, or there'll be rivers in the desert, or there'll be rivers from the mountain. It seemed like no matter what, if there was a plague going on, or they were in rebellion, or whatever it was, it just didn't matter. God's answer was always water. And this is, this is fascinating thing to learn. I, I think I finally got it. It was like no matter what the problem is, God has a cure-all. It's some form of water. It's rain. It's rivers. It's streams in the desert. It's pools. It's water. And then I realized, ah, it's the Holy Spirit. So he is the cure-all. He is the cure-all. So religious institutions haven't been able to improve upon the cure-all. Once you have one thing that fixes everything, it's tough to improve on that. (laughs) Jesus took the man of the Gadarenes, brought him into his one-step program. (laughs) Out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's an amazing story. I love the story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. The man of the Gadarenes comes along. The disciples almost died at sea. They're tired of getting in boats because they almost die every time they get in a boat. <laughs> they finally make it to shore, and they get out, and you can see them kissing the planet. And they look up, and here it comes. 
the man of the Gadarenes, the guy that's got so many demons that his demons are possessed. <laughs> and he's running at Jesus, and you can just see Peter and John talking. Peter says, I'll take him high, you take him low. <laughs> we're we're going to cast out both the demon and the man. And Jesus delivers him in a moment. Now, we have some amazing stories. I'm sure you'll be hearing from Don and the, and the team. The length of time it used to take to get somebody like that free, many years ago, it was never. Then it was shortened to like 10 or 15 years. And now it's shortened dramatically where there are some that actually get set free of that sort of thing in moments. And others, it's honestly, they've, they've gotten it towards days or sometimes weeks. But the point is, is that we're getting better at this. We're just, we're getting better at this. The one-step program, out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, I don't know how else to do this. It's in public, you take risk. In private, you pray. It's, it's the secret to miracles. In public, you take risk. In private, you pray. You cry out to God. God, I've got to see the demonized set free. I've got to see them free. You've got to, you've got to give me the, you know, we all know on paper we have it, but when we get into a real life situation where another voice comes out of a person, I just had this happen here recently. The voice. I was praying for this gal. She comes up, she says, tell me what's wrong with me. I said, oh, it just helps me if you just tell me what you think's wrong. I, I didn't want to work that hard, you know. I, I, I just, you know, Chris could do it, but not me. I, I work differently. My gift works a little better if you just give me a target. I don't care if it's a fake one. Just give me a target of some sort, you know. <clears throat> and she told me what she thought her problem was, and I. And I said, well, I said, Jesus can fix that. She shook her head, no. And I said, yeah, he really can. I've seen him do that. I've seen him heal that. She shook her head, no. I said, yes, he can do that. I've seen him do that. And this voice comes out. She doesn't want to be free. I go, yeah, she does. She does. She does. It took a lot of courage for her to walk up at the front of this sanctuary with me coming up to me. This coming from the back row to come up here. I took a lot of courage. And I mentioned her name. I said, Sandra, we'll just say it's Sandra. Sandra wants to be free. Oh, Sandra doesn't want to be free. I said, well, she does. I said, I want to talk to Sandra because somebody else looking through the windows. So I got her to the window and said, just pray this with me. So I led her in this prayer. And when we got to the blood of Jesus, she just freaked out. She just freaked out. And this voice comes out, we own her blood. We own her blood. I said, no. I said, well, we're going to end, we're going to end that. We own her blood. We've owned her blood for 37 years. I said, well, we'll just cancel that. She says, you don't have the authority. I said, watch me. 
prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus and broke that thing. She came back that night. She had made a blood covenant with the devil 37 years earlier. And it was, she came up, she said it was broken this morning. Now, let me tell you, I've had many others of those situations that didn't end quite as good. You know, where I wanted to cast the demon and the person out, you know. But I've been praying in private, saying, God, I've, I've got to see breakthrough here. This is, it's the whole gospel. I've got to have the whole gospel. It's, it's got to be the whole thing. I've seen the cancer leave. I'm thrilled. I've seen all these things. It's not because I need the wow factor. He, he wows me. Every sign points to someone. And he's the someone who constantly wows me. I, I, don't, I don't need entertainment value of miracles. I pursue miracles only because I'm in debt. I owe it to him. I don't pursue them because somehow they keep me, my self-esteem going. No, I'm indebted to them. I've been given the spirit of the resurrected Christ and all of heaven positioned itself to see what I would conquer in his name. What kind of fruit I'd bring back to the king because of what he gave to me. I pursue them, but only because I'm in debt. We pray for the sick because we want Jesus to get what he paid for. So in private, you cry out to God. This is a pretty simple formula. You might want to run it down. When you're alone, cry out to God and be specific. When you're in public, look for the people you prayed for in private. If you're crying out for a breakthrough in cancer, you better pray for, you better look for people with cancer. Don't, don't do this cry out to God in private, then do nothing in public. So you cry out to God in private. You just, you know, if you keep running into sugar diabetes, well, guess what? God's summoning you. I'll never forget several years ago, I was in Texas, and in two nights I spent several hours ministering to five people. They all had MS, and not one was healed. It's such a bummer to spend so much time and not see really any measurable progress in any person, and yet you spend hours in prayer for five people, one at a time for an hour, hour and a half, another. Not Didn't have breakthrough with one person. At the end of that, you can come to the conclusion that, well, it's obvious I just don't have the anointing for MS. And next time somebody comes to you, you just say, you know, go to Joaquin. <laughs> Try him. I'm shooting blanks. Or you could take the five people that came to you, which is an unusual coincidence, which is oftentimes is the language of the Spirit. You can take it as a summons. Come to the secret place and get the breakthrough. It's an invitation. It's all how you look at stuff. Would God torment me? Would he torment you? Would he do things to you just to expose what you don't have without summoning you into what's available? Is he a mocker? Is he a humiliator? He's none of those things. He's none of those things. Everything he does, he sets us up for advancement, for promotion. Everything he does is for advancement and promotion. 
And so when you see several things line up like that, several things in a row like that, you just realize I'm in a divine moment. Whenever you see unusual coincidences, and I don't care what they are, you know, you keep looking at the clock at the same time every day. Well, maybe there's a deep prophetic significance in that time. But I'm, I'm not so sure that the Lord is always trying to give us a deep message. Sometimes I think he's just trying to tell us you're at the right place at the right time. An unusual coincidence is that, is that affirmation. You're where I want you to be, son. Good job. You got here because you listened. What does that do to you in the middle of stuff? It, you just realize he set the stage for Christ and me to be honored. It's that unusual coincidence, the unusual circumstances. Sometimes they're so bizarre that you know it could never happen without, apart from God. I, I can't go into one, but I had one just weird one. It lasted for months. It's in, it's in one of my books. Dreaming with God. I think it's, it's in there. In fact, I know it's in there. Dreaming with God. It's called Under the Language of the Spirit. Where well, I had this roadrunner would show up to our prayer meetings. A roadrunner. Every week. He wouldn't come to hear me preach, but he'd come to hear us pray. Really, I sat there, look at this thing, realizing this is too weird to not be prophetic. I knew that the Lord would speak to us through it, and, and it was about an eight-month-long lesson, but he finally did. But the point is, is you, you're leaning into the Lord. I know none of us want to be like the flaky people that interpret, you know, every blade of grass as some big prophetic symbol and prophetic lesson. But sometimes in our resistance to not be like somebody who's flaky, we become the exact opposite, which is just as wrong. We become hardened to the very things God is saying and doing more acceptable to the religious community we like to be admired by. See, most people choose the church they go to by the manifestations of the flesh that are acceptable there. That was really a good point. That was a very good point. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, if, if you like it wild and crazy and, and, you know, any bizarre thing that happens is God and nobody ever challenges or corrects anything, then that's the church a person goes to. But other people prefer the silent flesh that examines and critiques everything. But it's flesh. It's as carnal as the guy rolling on the floor and God left him ten feet ago. Let me show you something about the... I haven't opened the Bible yet, so it's not even legal. Not even a legal meeting. But let me show you just... I'm going to do a real quick thing. I actually, um, uh, in Luke 4... Go to Luke 4, and I'm going to give you just the Reader's Digest version of a much more extensive uh, teaching that I do. And I want to talk to you for the remaining moments. What we'll do is I'll talk to you for maybe another 15 minutes, and then we'll take a break. And then we'll come back to questions and answers for a bit, and then just lay hands on everyone that won't run out of the room. So if you run out of the room, I won't chase you, but 
Actually, I might if I'm in. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Look for. I want to, what, here's what I, how I want to end this uh, my session with you. There is a culture for miracles. There's actually a culture. Culture is how you do life. It's how you think. It's how you view reality. It's your relational boundaries. It's it has everything to do with how you relate to people, to how you relate to your money, to what you think about your future, uh, um, uh, the whole context of community, how we do things together. All of that is culture. Um, how you value creativity, how you value the gifts of other people, how you value the Holy Spirit upon another person, all of that is culture. In a culture of honor, you celebrate who a person is without stumbling over who they're not. It's finding the gold in the person, finding, recognizing the gift, the grace that's on them, and making that the point of celebration. There is a kingdom culture. It's a biblical culture. It's heaven's culture that when it is sustained, it creates an atmosphere for the miraculous. Now, that's important for us for this reason. A culture is like a greenhouse. A greenhouse is where, uh, I remember I was in uh, Poland, I was in the Netherlands a number of years ago, and, and it was cold and nasty, nasty, nasty weather. I think it was like February, and it was just so damp and cold. And I went and bought a sweater to add to my coat, and, you know, I was, I was just freezing. And they, if we had a break, and so they took us into these huge greenhouses where these rows and rows of tulips were. And it, was, it was quite stunning. The color was crazy, beautiful. A greenhouse is a controlled environment. A greenhouse is a controlled environment. Control, you have light, temperature, moisture is all controlled in some measure in a greenhouse. Why? So that the seeds you want to grow, grow easily. What is a kingdom culture? A kingdom culture is a greenhouse. It causes the things you want to grow to grow easily. When we target culture, realize it or not, we actually start to monitor atmosphere so that the seeds that represent valuable truths to us, they grow easily. Miracles become very easy, very simple. Is this making sense to you, this, the culture? I, I hope so, because some of you have been in places where, man, you've had to fight tooth and nail for every small little breakthrough. And you get it, but it's it's like it's just really difficult. There's so much opposition, there's so much warfare, there's so much all this stuff. Why? Well, it's just start getting turning the attention towards the culture of heaven. What is heaven like? When he said on earth as it is in heaven, it wasn't just saying streets of gold and uh, you know things of that nature. He was talking about the reality of that atmosphere to impact this one. It has to affect how we have relationships. It has to affect what I think of myself. I can't have a thought in my head about me that he doesn't have in his head about me. If I do, then my mind will be at war with God. My mind's either renewed or it's at war with God. There's no neutral ground. When my mind is renewed, then it is the tool of the Lord to demonstrate and illustrate what he thinks, feels, and has planned. Are you alive? <laughs> All right. The, the, the uh, culture is a, is a target. 
Now, let's just say this was a church right here. Let's just say, let's just say this was a church. We just planted, we get this many people. Um, or let's say it's a church that's been in existence for five years and suddenly we've got presented with this idea of that God heals today. Well, as a leader, you can't convince everybody at once. I'm, I'm just telling you right now, if you're a pastor of a church and you haven't been going a certain direction, you get up on one Sunday, you may think it's great news for you to stand up and say, hey, I just found out something. Jesus still heals today. Well, you're going to have a few folks that already knew it. You're going to have a few folks that are so happy to hear it. And you're going to have a whole bunch of others that are going, what happened to him? Where, he must have gone to Reading. He went to that weird place. That, that's what happened to him. We knew he shouldn't have gone there. And so what I did when I came here is I threw out truth to everyone. I love everyone. I serve everyone. I pour my time into the few. Because as long as I speak of a breakthrough, they don't connect. But when their peers get the breakthrough, I find the ones with a fire in their eyes. When I talk, I look and I can see. I can see the fire in their eyes. Those are the ones. Those are the ones. Because you start getting breakthrough with that small company, then guess what? They have associations this guy over here goes, well, I know that guy. He would never act like that. Something, this must be real. And this one over here says, well, I, man, I went to school with her. And she, she never talked that way before. And, and see, suddenly it starts spreading through in a way that I, as a pastor, could never get it to spread. But as pastors, we constantly pour ourselves out to touch the masses, not realizing we have restricted responsibility in each level, in each group. Restricted responsibility because I've restricted authority. The authority has been set by the people. When, uh, when, when this first started here 15 years ago, a Sunday night, it would be 15 years in a couple months, on a Sunday night, I had the whole church come to the front, people all over the front. They were tired. They had been without a pastor for eight months. We had just come. They wanted us to come because they were hungry for revival. Their leadership had come to Weaverville, saw what was happening there. It's an hour away from here. And they wanted that in Reading. They wanted that at Bethel. So they asked us to come back down to the mother church and to serve here. So on this Sunday night, I invited everyone to the front. They all lined up along the front and began to pray. And I asked the Holy Spirit to come with power. And he fell powerfully on one person. Now, I've got several hundred people around the front. The power of God fell on one lady. And Benny and I are standing here together on the stairs. We looked at each other and went, we got it. It is now unstoppable. (laughs) You couldn't have convinced us that we didn't just win the lottery. We felt like we were on the top of the world because he came. We did. I mean, we were so encouraged. We just found the cloud the size of a man's hand. Yeah, come on. If you're only encouraged by big numbers, you'll be depressed most of your life. <laughs> or you'll only be encouraged by somebody else's breakthrough because he can't trust people with more that don't handle less. He'll trust you in a crowd if he can trust you alone. All right. I was going to tell you something here. 
Oh, yeah, Luke 4. My 15 minutes almost got used up, and I haven't even got to it yet. Maybe I'll just skip it. Okay, we'll do it fast. Luke 4. Jesus, in verse 18, just uh, quoted, this is the city of Nazareth now. He quoted, he read to the people, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You're familiar with that passage. Jump down to verse 20. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant. All the eyes of everyone fixed on him. Verse 21, he began to say, in other words, it was an ongoing statement, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, they've been accustomed to hearing scripture read their entire life, but never was today the day. They've never had a today. Put it in context. They have never heard the voice of God. For 400 years, he was silent. There were no dreams. There were no prophecies. There were no visions. There were no prophets. Nothing happened for 400 years. They are not used to hearing God. Their parents never heard from God. Their grandparents, for 10 generations... Talk about generational bondage. This is the biggest bondage ever. 400 years of silence. So they have never heard a today. They've only heard someday. And Jesus reads this verse. Picture this. When he reads it, I need a few more minutes. When he reads it, picture this now. In John 6, Jesus said, my words to you are spirit and they are life. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the Word of God made flesh, but when he talked, the Word of God was made spirit. Word made flesh, when he spoke, Word was made spirit. Why is that important? Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is in the spirit. It's in the realm of the spirit. What is the realm of the spirit? Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Let's put it this way. Wherever the Holy Spirit manifests or demonstrates the lordship of Jesus, the kingship, freedom is the evidence. Wherever Jesus is as king, his citizens are free. All right? So the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is on the sermon, at the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to speak. What's happening? His words become spirit, which means what? The atmosphere of the entire place just changed. People start considering possibilities they never considered before. Why? Because presence was released. Something was activated in them that had never been activated in anybody they ever knew. There was an atmospheric shift because the spirit who contains the realm called king's domain, kingdom, is released into the atmosphere and is over them. That's why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Change the way you think because my entire world is within reach right now because of what I just said to you. Change your perspective on reality because my world just became released over you and it's now within reach. You can draw it any moment. Because of what he said. 
Because words are realities in the kingdom. That's how the world was created. And God said, let there be light. So Jesus is reading out of Isaiah 61, and for the first time in their life, as he reads, you can imagine they're sitting there doing their ritual as they do every week. They're sitting there in a the synagogue. It's Jesus' turn to read. He's just one of the guys. He grew up in town. He's a real nice kid, lives down the street, dad's carpenter. And he stands up to read, and when he starts reading, the atmosphere changes. <laughs> and something in them stood up. Something in them that was never alive before suddenly gets ignited because they heard from God for the first time in their life. And so when he's through, he hands the book back to the attendant and sits down, and everyone is just staring at him. Why? Because they just got aware of another world. Verse 22, all bore witness to him. Look at it. All bore witness to him. This is Nazareth. What do we know Nazareth for? Unbelief. Unbelief. This is Nazareth now. Before the unbelief, what happened? They all bore witness to him. The heart of everyone in the synagogue leaped and recognized this is the one we've been waiting for, that we've heard about our entire life. This is the Messiah. This is amazing. You've got to listen to this. This is the Messiah. They all bore witness to him. Look at the next phrase. And marveled at the gracious words proceeding from his mouth. Gracious. Grace filled. What is grace? Grace is that presence of favor that enables. 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 Makes capable. They've never been capable of anything supernatural in their entire existence. They don't know of anyone who has, and only in their long time ago history there were prophets. But it was never including anyone else. And they're sitting there. And suddenly, inside, they feel grace at work, which is the enabling presence of God. And they start awakening to the reality that there is something about their life that has significance. They've never felt it before in their life, and they don't know anyone that's ever felt that way. And Jesus is reading the Scripture. They've got all this stuff going on inside of them, and they look around the room, and they realize that guy over there has the same dumb look on his face that I know I have on mine. And they start recognizing that everybody in the room is feeling and recognizing the same thing. They're all being impacted by this presence that was released into the atmosphere. A reality just invaded the synagogue that they've never before seen or felt. Stunning. And then somebody said, isn't this Joseph's son? And they looked at what. How dumb. Yes, that's, we saw him grow up. See, their heart was taking them into the kingdom. Their head kept them out. One question dismantled 
this amazing revelation that had been kept from man for all of time. It now gets unveiled. And one person with a question that everybody entertained. It caused the whole thing to fall. Jesus was setting Nazareth up to be the city, the revival center. They had home field advantage. He was not setting them up for failure. He was setting them up for success. And he unveiled his ministry at home. Stunning. Verse 24. He says, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. It's interesting. What kept Nazareth from the kingdom was they knew Jesus. And there's a lot of people that can tell you all about him that don't know him. It's possible even to this day. The Apostle Paul refers to another Jesus. It's possible for people to know Jesus the wrong way. That's not a statement of guilt for anybody in the room. It's just it's a reality. Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Another way that's stated, as you recognize in Scripture, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. In Matthew 10:41, Jesus teaches it this way. He says, <clears throat> If you honor a prophet, in the name of a prophet, you receive the prophet's reward. Which means what? If you honor the man according to his gift and the presence, the favor that the Spirit of God has put on him and the gift he's given him, if my honor for the man is equal to his gift, then I get to receive what he brings to the table. But now if I honor the prophet as a good brother, then I receive a good brother's reward. Because... The measure I use in giving honor is the measure that is used to pour back in my life. That's one of the laws of the kingdom. That's one of the laws of the kingdom. In tapping the resource of that world, we have to use the laws of that world. And when our words are in conflict with what we believe, we're violating. We have two worlds colliding. And so here we have Jesus. He says, if you honor a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive what he brings to the table. You get the prophet's reward. And then he goes on. And he says, I tell you the truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah set except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers who were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Here's the profound thing that he says that I'll end this session with. Jesus says, all right, this that just happened in this room caused the miracle anointing to shut down to where I could only minister to people through the laying on of hands instead of through the corporate anointing that comes when there's agreement. 
Now, it's interesting that the low point in Jesus' ministry remains the high point for most churches. To be able to say they laid hands on a few sick people and got them healed would be a breakthrough weekend. But that was the low point for Jesus. So here he teaches them a lesson. He says, here's your history. There were many widows during the famine. Now, this is Jesus' sermon. And this had to be a painful moment for these Israelites that were sitting at his feet. He said, there were many widows that were in great need of a miracle provision. But the prophet wasn't sent to any of them. Why? Well, in his lesson, the honor for the prophet has to be equal to his call, or you don't receive the benefit of the prophet. And so God said, I sent my prophet outside of Israel to provide for the widow, because there were no one, there was no one with whom I had covenant that had given honor equal to the gift to draw from what I wanted to do for my own people. And so here Israel goes without the miracle of provision while this woman gets a breakthrough. And then he goes on further. He says, Elisha lived at a time when there were a lot of lepers. God doesn't just heal. He is Jehovah Rapha. It's his nature to heal. And that anointing resided on the prophets. At any moment, you can draw from what rests of the Spirit of God upon a man or a woman of God. And I sent my man Elisha throughout the land, but there was no one, as in his ministry, there was no lepers that were ever healed, except for the general of an army that was an enemy to Israel. I went outside of my own people of covenant and found someone that would honor the gift equal to the demand, equal to the what was needed. It's, it's not a complicated lesson, once again, but it is very deep and profound that the atmosphere of honor. See, is there honor for a person? I don't like this whole thing of, well, I, I honor Jesus in you. No, you need to honor the person. They're made in God's image. Every person has a glory that has been given to them by God. You look at it in the Scripture, there is a glory that is given to man. And you honor the person. It is not our job to make sure your friend doesn't get a big head. Well, I don't want you to get a big head. Well, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to keep encouraged. To keep the people around you encouraged and strengthened and motivated. That's your job. Your job is not to monitor anything else. You just be the person that speaks the words of the Lord to him. So you honor the person because they're made in God's image. Secondly, you honor the gift. God has released a grace, a gift upon that person that will be of benefit to you. We are members of a body and we're in tremendous need of our brothers and sisters having the freedom to operate in the gift God gave them. So we honor the person, we honor the gift, and then finally, we honor the Spirit of God who has chosen to rest upon that person. And that measure of honor that is released and given towards another person determines what we can receive from them. 
That is the lesson that Jesus gave. And he just described why the miracle anointing vanished out of Nazareth in a few moments because one person asked a question that pulled them out of a heartfelt experience into an analytical experience. It's not that the Lord is opposed to the mind. The mind is extremely important, but it's important as it receives from the spirit, not as it directs the spirit of man. An intellectual-led believer is a carnal Christian. Faith does not come from the mind. It comes from the heart. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. You will know things here that you are clueless about here. How many of you have had that happen? You know things here and you know her that you can't explain to anybody. Well, you just keep, it's not that the Lord doesn't want us to understand. It's just that as we obey, eventually we get the language until our mind now is conformed to our heart's experience. That's called the renewed mind. All right, I'll end with this. I've already said I would end before, and, and that was the ending. This is just farther into the ending. This is, this is a more conclusive ending. Oh, I forgot what it is. It's, it's, it's so, so profound. The Lord is enabling you to decide what kind of world you want to live in. The mind is to be shaped by the Spirit. Your encounters with the Lord change how you think. I can understand things here that I don't understand things here. For with a heart man believes, doesn't say with a mind man believes, but here's where I end. While the renewed mind, faith doesn't come from the mind, the renewed mind enhances faith. It helps to create the atmosphere for faith to thrive, where you finally get heart and mind working in tandem to create the focus, direction, and the release for faith. Put a hand on somebody next to you and just pray for them. Just pray for them and bless them. Just pray, pray, pray for that breakthrough, that breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough to come upon them. Thank you, Lord. Spirit of breakthrough, pray for that. A spirit of breakthrough to come upon them. A spirit of breakthrough. A spirit of breakthrough. Spirit of breakthrough. History maker. Start praying that one over them. God, release them into their role as a history maker. Now just put your hand on your own heart. And pray for the one who really needs it. (laughs) Oh, God, help me. Help is my favorite prayer. I think it's my most frequent one. Help. Help me, help me, help me. Help me, help me. So, Lord, I thank you for the grace that's being released. I thank you for what you're doing in this hour, that this is all your idea. This is all entirely your idea. And we're just catching up to what you're saying. We do say amen. We, see, we do say, Lord, perform your word in us. 
Let it be according to your word. Uh, what happens in us, let it be according to your word. Uh, we ask that you'd continually help us in the renewing of the mind. Uh, help us in our thinking, our perception, uh, that we would uh, that we would pick up what you're saying, what you're doing, and think like you. Amen. Amen. There is an oak tree in an acorn. A renewed mind sees the potential of a moment. So what I encourage you to do is in, in this that's happening here in this room is to see the moments that God gives you, the connections with people. Just realize there's a whole lot more going on than our tiny brains could possibly comprehend. And I don't have to understand it all to get it all. I have to say yes to get it all. And uh, so I just I encourage you now. We'll come. Is it? Do you want to end it, or do you, do you? Uh, is it a 15 minute break? Is that what you're wanting? 15 minute break. We'll come back to questions and answers for about 40 minutes or so, and then uh, we'll do laying out of hands. All right. Take a break. <laughs>